Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring everything fringe, cryptic, and weird in the world. Today on the show, we're going to get into Bitcoin, blockchain, and the amazing journalist Ethan Liu, who somehow I was lucky enough to be allowed to have him on my show, which is pretty humbling. And he's been on the front lines since the inception of cryptocurrency, more or less. It's actually a subjective topic. and doesn't have enough evidence behind it to say definitely who or when or what concerning the origins of Bitcoin. However, Ethan Liu has become quite the successful Bitcoin investor and details the journey in his soon to be released book, Once a Bitcoin Miner. I got a pre-release copy of it and couldn't put it down. This guy has uh, some skills in writing to say the least. And he's also been to North Korea for Bitcoin which is crazy. He just wanted to go and went. Anyway, blockchain, Bitcoin, the deep web seem to be kind of the future for anti-establishment, non-conformist types. And since you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles, you are most likely one of these types of people. I highly suggest getting Ethan's book upon its release. And I'll have links in the show notes on how to do so or how to, how to follow him and whatnot. This book's not out yet, so you might have to wait a little bit. But when it is out, I'll definitely have a link if you're listening to this in the future. You should also follow him on social media, his blogs, or whatever, everything will be there. I wanna cover the dark web and the deep web in the future here and there. And covering Bitcoin is an excellent introduction for that because it was actually, it found its foundation on the dark web. And nobody expected that it would blow up like it did. Whereas once the internet was the wild west of freedom, it's increasingly being conquered and controlled by the mega corporation elite. So knowing there are other options with blockchain technology is kind of awesome. And if you have not heard of it, you should definitely know about it. We may even in the future find ourselves presented with a second internet that's free of corporate dominators thanks to blockchain. I myself will be looking to invest in Bitcoin and blockchain technology soon with the, the steady fall of US currency that's going on right now, its value is just going down and down. Like, did you know that 40% of all money in the US was printed within the past year based on no real source of value to back it up? And knowing what we know about history, I'd say it's safe to back up your money in things that will stay valuable when the dollar steadily crashes. That doesn't just mean Bitcoin, but I think it's a good idea for people to start intelligently investing before inflation gets too bad. And I realized that I was talking way too close to the mic during this interview way too late, but I think I fixed all the clipping. But if my audio seems kind of off, that's why. Not a big deal though. Anyway, let's get into it. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles.
Ethan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Tim. Yeah, of course. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of yourself and how you got into Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So I am a journalist. I write a column at a newspaper in Canada called the Financial Post. And before that, I was at Reuters. I spent two years there. Uh, but we all contain multitudes. So I was an early Bitcoin investor. And I know the term uh, early is a, is a subjective term. Uh, there are definitely lots of people even earlier than me, lots of really super OGs. But I got in at around uh, 2013. And I recently wrote a book, uh, Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. And yeah, it's about my adventures in the crypto space. And among the highlights, I was in North Korea with uh, Virgil Griffith, who at the time was from the Ethereum, pleaded guilty to helping North Korea to overcome sanctions through blockchain. Yeah, that was crazy. That was at the end of the book. That was pretty fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and that was, uh, I can tell you, that was very unexpected. I was not expecting to include that in the book because the defense has said that what he said at the conference, he just presented publicly available information. And, and you know, having been there, I feel that's accurate. It's just like information that you can read on a Wikipedia page. So I didn't think it was anything spectacular. So when, when Virgil got arrested, when I heard the news, that was, that was an absolute shock. Yeah, and then at the end, it was really hard to chase down people to get stories and stuff. They were just a, like Lan was his name, Jan, Jan, and it was just a mess. Oh yeah, so uh, one um, one tenet of journalism is to is to be transparent, and <laughs> the the idea is that nobody should be surprised to read about themselves. And you know, they may not like what you wrote, and they may they may really hate it, but they, they should know that this bad information. Uh, maybe not bad, but what, whatever you want to write about them, they should know that it's coming out. It's both an ethical and a legal obligation. And uh, so what, as a journalist, what you have to do is that you have to present what you write to the people and, you know, maybe not, not wholesale, but the substance of it and, and to seek their comment because everyone deserves their opportunity. And, and, you know, like, humans in general we we dislike confrontation so and mm-hmm. i think i especially so it's it's actually very uncomfortable but i think uncomfortable is also good so uh, i'm gonna go on a bit of a tangent here you know in in game of thrones the uh the northern customs they say the man who passes the sentence must swing the sword mm-hmm. so and the idea is that uh if you're the liege lord if you want to damn someone to die uh that's uh that's a very big thing. And if you're not willing to bear the uncomfortableness of personally killing the guy, you uh, maybe you should reconsider. Maybe yeah. the guy doesn't deserve to die. So I think similarly, as a journalist, whenever I write about people, uh, I should be willing to look them in the eye and tell them I'm writing this about them. And if I am not willing to bear that uncomfortableness, perhaps I shouldn't be writing about them. I respect that a lot. Oh, thank you. Not everyone does. Yeah, absolutely. Because you really wanted to get their side of the story and they're trying to fight you against you for it. It's like, no, I just want, I want to document your side so that way it doesn't come off in a way that maybe you think is not fair, which I thought was very ethical. Oh yeah, thank you. And But I, I think lots of people, they, 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 they may not necessarily necessarily get that. And yeah. they, they might take an antagonistic view and that's when I guess the job becomes harder. Yeah, that's when it gets kind of weird.
Oh, yeah. when, I, when I first picked up the book, I read the first, uh, the prologue, the intro, I mean, and um, I was like, what is going on here? It's like a shootout and stuff. And I was like, where, <laughs> where is this book going to take me, you know? But it was actually really, I, find, I found that that was a real interesting way to like pique someone's interest in the book. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And I, Great start. Yeah. So uh, the, that, that, that shootout. So uh, I, I probably shouldn't. If, if I, yeah, I don't want to spoil if, it. If I explain how it ties yeah. back, I'll spoil it. But <laughs> yeah. uh, that was, uh, yeah. So I guess I can't talk much about that. Yeah. I, I put a lot of effort into writing that prologue. And every single person who is named there, I, I, I have tracked them down to uh, at least to tell them about this and uh, and try to seek, seek their comment, uh, with the exception of uh, the, the, the first person, because his name is so common. It's like uh, his name is just basically two first names, and I, I just could not find him. That was just a great way to start the book, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, sometimes I feel like may maybe I should write a whole book on j just that episode because that, that, there is a significance to that episode. That was uh, that was when the gang violence in the city of Calgary, where part of the book is set, that's where the gang violence spilled over into the civilian world. Because in the past, cops didn't care if the gangsters kill each other, but a whole bunch of civilians died and they cracked down and organized crime is like very much diminished in the city now. Well, that's good. Yeah. So in Bitcoin's early use on the dark web, I find that pretty fascinating. And I didn't even know who was created, who created Bitcoin, but it was, uh, well, most people say that it was uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, right? Yeah. And I, I guess beyond the name, most people don't know anything about uh, about the, the, the person. Could be a man, could be a woman, could be anyone, could be a, could be a group. But so... That people analyze his writing, and uh, what we do know is that he used British English, but he also adhered to North American time. And he has told people, and I'm using he because most people you see, uh, he has told people that uh, he's a Japanese man living in Japan, which mm -hmm. is evidently not true if he adheres to North American time. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a great mystery as to who really created Bitcoin. And it was supposed to be just like a medium of exchange in a really small, tight area, but it just exploded everywhere. Yeah. And uh, there was this famous person, I actually can't recall the name, who said that the the bigger question isn't whether Bitcoin will grow from like 1,000 to 10,000, but the bigger question is whether it'll go from like zero to maybe 100. And I, I think at the start, uh, when, when Satoshi Nakamoto designed Bitcoin and meant for it to be a medium of exchange, I don't think he had any idea how how it'll take off like this, and oh, that, yeah. and that might have just been like a one in a million kind of thing, you know. And I think now because it is established, the future is very bright. But back then, between zero to a hundred, um, yeah, there was no certainty at all. It was lightning in a bottle. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a very good way to put it. So you said like earlier in your early experience with it, you said in the book that you told yourself you should have like uh, maybe given it up and sold it off a couple of times, but you never did. What mm -hmm. was it that like kept you going? Uh, uh, th th that's a good question. I, I'm, I'm actually not sure because I, the, so when I bought Bitcoin, when I first bought it, it was at a thousand bucks, but right after I bought it, it fell like 50%. And I just thought, what the hell was I doing? And, and after it fell 50%, it fell even more because I think, 2015 at the beginning of it 
it fell to as low as 200. But I, I think one thing that, that kept me going was that I didn't have any debt or anything. I didn't buy with borrowed money. And I, I've always adhered to that principle to when I invest, I, I never play with money that I'm not prepared to lose. So I, I, and I guess that's a good principle. You know, you hear, uh, you see headlines these days of students uh, buying crypto with, uh, with, with the student loan money, people mortgaging their houses to buy Bitcoin. And some people that, you know, they, they do, uh, they, they do get out ahead of that. They, they do make a lot of money, but ultimately that's a, that's a really huge risk you're taking. Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting how you you seem to be getting like frustrated a couple times. And I think I think it's like the earlier chapters, but you just stick with it and you don't give up. And in the end, you come out on top. Yeah, I guess I'm a I guess I'm a stubborn guy in a way sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's both a good and a bad thing. Yeah, and... it's a double edged sword. But in your case, <laughs> in your case, it was a good thing. Yeah, and I, I guess also I'm I, I, I'm I'm quite lucky at times, you know. And I I did get in when Bitcoin was at a thousand, and I got in when it was at two hundred. And yeah, that those are opportunities that will never come again. When you were talking about how um, like the dismal outlook that millennials have, that kind of resonated with me too because I was born in 1985, so I'm like the first year of the millennial generation, and it was just yeah. it's it seems like you. Like I have the same kind of issues where it's just like, oh, well, we don't really have much going for us compared to literally every other generation. But Bitcoin is like one of the things can, that can save us in a way to an extent. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so you're you're about five years older than me. I was born in 1990. And I I, I remember when, when my father got his first job here, I think he was making like like 40,000 and it, it's not that much. And I think I, I've always thought that he, he didn't make that much money, but you know, these days, and you know, when I got my first job, I, I made uh, quite a bit, a, a lot more than he did when he got his first job. And mm -hmm. uh, when I look at it, I, I, th I think uh, 40,000, but 40,000 back then, that's like, it's worth more than double now, almost if you take into account like the prices of housing and the, the cost of university. Uh, yeah, because like my, my university education, that's a lot more than uh, my parents back then. And, you know, you make like 60, 70,000 maybe a, a, as a first job. Uh, that, was, that was how much I made. And I thought that was a lot, but it really isn't compared to, to previous generations. And, you know, in the UK now, because of the dismal financial outlooks uh, for, for for our generation, millennials are the first generation to have worse health than their, than their parents. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's, that's just bonkers. Yeah. Also, all of the garbage that we've been eating all of our lives has led us to have like a lot of health issues too. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I I found that statistic while I was looking up all these other statistics, and doesn't have that much to do with the economy. But uh, a millennial man's sperm quality is way uh, is way lower than than all the men that come before him. Yeah, it's bad. And yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's 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 very depressing, eh? Yeah, and when you say that in the book, you say it in such a. I should have written it down. I didn't. But I thought it was very poetic how it was like you're in a generation where it's just something literally wrong with all of us is just inherently wrong. 
Like, and it's a weird feeling to have. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like that, when you were talking about all of that stuff, listeners, when you when you definitely read the book and it's really good to read it. I mean, I, I had a fantastic time reading it and he really goes in depth to a lot of this stuff that's kind of heart-wrenching sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, th- thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, when writing it, uh, it's sometimes hard to know whether like what you're feeling, how it will come across through your words, whether your thoughts will come across 100%, but you know, c- clearly it did. You, uh, you got exactly what I was writing. Well, I can tell too that you are an extremely experienced writer because your writing is top, top notch. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, easy. So, um, and then, then the book you were talking about how if Google could choose to read all of your emails, you'd never know about it. So do you think that we give these mega corporations a lot of power and trust to the extent that it's actually kind of stupid? Oh yeah, a- a- absolutely. And I-, I should tell you something about the, the the whole trip to North Korea. So after Virgil Griffith got arrested, you know, when the cops were investigating, mm-hmm. they subpoenaed the email accounts of a whole bunch of people who went to North Korea. And what happens in a subpoena is that, or that type of subpoena is that there is a legally enforced delay. So when the FBI reads your emails through that, you you wouldn't know about it until six months or a year after the fact. So you have no way to fight it. You only know when it has already happened. And yeah, that that is that, that feels very invasive. And that that kind of sent a chill down my spine. And and you know, but the FBI, they they weren't they were only targeting Virgil Griffith. Like they were mm-hmm. when they looked into the email accounts of another conference goer, they uh, they were looking for evidence against Virgil. Mm-hmm. But, but but still, you know, uh Well, he it, said a little bit too much and was he was kind of naive. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, at, at the heart of that, that issue is that we rely so much on these online services and we think of them not as tools we use, but more like limbs, you know, your email yeah. account is very important to you, your, your Instagram account, you know, your Facebook, how you connect with mm-hmm. friends and, and, you know, some people have a blue check mark on their Twitter account and, you know, they, they hold that so dear. Because I remember when I got verified, my girlfriend texted me very excitedly. It's like as if I got elevated into nobility. And <laughs> but you know, these things aren't really ours. You know, yeah. we have no rights in the digital world. Anything like your email account. What happens if tomorrow uh, Google just says you can't have this account anymore? We're closing it, and it's gone. That there is nothing <laughs> you can do. Yeah, and it's it's actually quite frightening because you know in the real world. Uh, the luckier of us, we have rights, but yeah, uh, online we 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 are just serfs. You know, we we submit unconditionally to our to our digital masters. Yeah, and I hate that, but I think that Bitcoin and blockchain are an excellent way to kind of fight that, like you said in the book. We'll be right back to the interview with Ethan Liu after a quick break.
Do you like food? Do you not like going places? Do you like staying home and having food brought to you? Well, you're in luck, because a thing called Blue Apron exists. With multiple pricing, there's a way to get the gourmet delicious meals under any budget. And it's totally worth it. Cryptic Chronicles would not promote Blue Apron unless it knew how good it is for you. With all the junk and everything these days, the majority of people sustain themselves on poison and don't even know it. A healthy spirit, mind, and body requires a healthy lifestyle, and the ability to take care of yourself, and feed your body all the nutrients it needs to function at its best in our highly demanding lives. You get to choose your own meals. The chef-designed recipes include balanced Mediterranean delicacies, quick one-pan dinners, and top-rated customer favorites. Unpack your home delivered box with enthusiasm because there's a guarantee on freshness and the highest quality of all Blue Apron products and ingredients. Create magic following our step-by-step -step instructions, you'll experience the magic of cooking recipes that the master Blue Apron chefs created with your family's tastes in mind. With step-by-step -step instructions, so you never miss a beat and have to get frustrated about making the meal. I know I do that. At least, when I'm not eating a delicious Blue Apron meal that is responsibly sourced, quality ingredients like fresh produce, sustainable seafood and exclusive spice blends means you're going to have a meal that's top tier over the common fast food garbage most people eat. And Blue Apron cares about the environment, which is another reason I love them so much, with recyclable ice packs and packaging to ensure your ingredients stay fresh until you're home and ready and easily disposable for the health of Mother Earth. Do yourself a favor, and take care of your body and mind the way nature intended it, with a healthy meal that's also gloriously delicious. With Blue Apron, the yummy goodness is dropped off right to your very doorstep. So if you like food, and you like not going places, then why not try Blue Apron, and give your mind a rest from going to crowded grocery stores, and writing a list of stuff to get, only to forget half. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, do, do you uh, have you heard of that story of a uh, Vitalik and uh, World of Warcraft? No. Oh, oh, this is a good story. So uh, Vitalik Buterin, you know the the main founder of uh, Ethereum, he he's talked about this story quite a few times. That he's he's an Warcraft player, and mm -hmm. he has this character which can cast some spell, a, a warlock spell, and it's a difficult spell. So to be able to cast it, you have to get your character up to a certain level. You have to play a lot, put a lot of effort into it. But one day, Blizzard, just uh, the company behind World of Warcraft, just decided to remove the spell. And so in the real world, it's as if you know you you spend a lot of time learning how to drive a car. And you, you get your driver's license, but one day the government says, aha, fuck you, we're going to take away your driver's license. And I guess to him, that was like that. And he said, uh, quote unquote, I cried myself to sleep. And <laughs> that was one of the reasons he created Ethereum, because uh, he, he wanted a, a more democratized internet where, oh. you know, th these big companies, they don't hold so much control over, uh, so much unchecked control over what we do and ethereum has a lot of problems but and uh, i i'm not surprised because crypto as a whole it's not even it's just barely more than 10 years old but at the heart of that i think is uh, it's a very pure aspiration that uh, that is quite noble oh yeah i love the anti-establishment nature of bitcoin 
yeah. Uh, well, I, sh- I, I should uh, share another story that I, I, I heard uh, that there is a there's a young Afghan girl. So, you, you know, like after Kabul fell, uh, after mm-hmm. the Taliban retook or as the Taliban were retaking Afghanistan, mm-hmm. the loss of refugees and, you know, because of how how bad the monetary system is, how mm-hmm. lousy the currency is. When the refugees flee, they they can't take their money with them. But one young Afghan girl, a uh, young woman, she had she had Bitcoin, and she memorized her her passphrase. And so it was a long journey out of Afghanistan. She traveled through the Middle East. Her ship sank in the Mediterranean, uh. and she had nothing but the clothes on her back. But in her head, she carried two bitcoins, and she was able to fund a new life in Germany. So, and wow. And I, I think that's uh, at its heart. That's what one of the beauties of Bitcoin that it allows you to do that. It's outside the system. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic story. So, what do most people misunderstand about your work, about what you do in Bitcoin? Uh huh. Well, uh, I, I, I think, um, I think lots of people have a distrust. Uh, Lots of crypto people have a distress against mainstream media. And at the same time, lots of people who read mainstream media have a distrust toward crypto. So <laughs> it's a very fine line that I walk because uh, I have the financial post. I think it's largely read by older people. And for example, every time I write a column, there's a guy, same guy, who will post something not specific to my column. It's like it's evident he hasn't read it, but he will he will say something bad about Bitcoin. Like it's backed by nothing. It's it's used only by criminals. So it's just uh, slander, propaganda. Yeah, yeah. and I I, uh, I have no no idea why he does that. And I I actually thought of writing a column about that because I think it's important to to understand why you know large sections of the population have something like visceral and inherently against crypto. And I, I asked him if he wanted to do an interview with me and he declined. But I, I think, yeah, that, that is one of the, that, that's well, one of the misconceptions that I, I, I guess I have to deal with uh, because quite a lot of the people reading what I write, they are, they're, they're not that partial toward crypto. Yeah, it gets a lot of hate, but that's mostly from people who don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but like uh, people who understand it, I, I think uh, crypto can sometimes also be uh, quite tribal, and you know there are that there are lots of people who I guess will will, will dislike anything that yeah. yes, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there for a while. They'll just but, dislike anything that goes against the grain. Yeah, yeah, that that uh, that I guess challenges their worldview, and I, I'm not yep. saying crypto is full of that. I I think uh, I think in every 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 group, every subculture, that there, there are people like that. But mm-hmm. um, I guess combined with the distrust of mainstream media, so and so I, I when I write, I I usually have to think about both sides of of, of uh, these people on far ends of the spectrum, and how I walk that line. Man, it's hard. Oh, yeah. 
with the mainstream media, I have to read usually like three different articles just to try and figure out one topic. <laughs> so, so is, is that, uh, what, what do you mean by that? So if, when I read my news and I get my information, I like to read from the right, and I like to read from the left, and I like to read from the center. And then in all three of those articles covering the same topic, I can see what's going on. Uh-huh, I see. I usually use some uh, an app called Ground News that shows all the bias and stuff. <laughs> I see. Oh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, because normally it's just, I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of the stuff out there is just straight up propaganda. And people can't, like, I think you said this in the book. I think you did. You said people can't really tell the difference between news and propaganda these days. Yeah, and I, I think, um, so I, I personally think like this is an issue, and maybe as a millennial I'm biased, I feel this is an issue that the the really old people have and the really young people have, like the boomers and the Gen Zs. Mm-hmm. And they are the least tech-savvy generations. And it's interesting because I feel Gen Z, that they're not very tech-savvy because I think you and I, we grew up when all these apps, they're not so beautifully and beautifully built they're not streamlined oh yeah and and remember like, remember geo cities and re- remember napster like, Na- napster yeah so <laughs> we had to really tinker under the hood and yeah. you know, we had to download our own mp3s and transfer them to the mp3 players um so i i think we dealt with the nuts and bolts a lot and so and we dealt with the nuts and bolts of the internet and as a result i think we've develop kind of a, a good bullshit detector but mm-hmm. for for gen z um everything is built for them you know they grew up with iphones and so they've never had to peek under the hood and i think maybe that's why that's how you get that statistic that uh, most american students these days they can't tell the difference between like actual journalistically reported news and just propaganda yeah they got no filter oh yeah which is sad but who knows? Maybe things could change. Tides come and go, right? It's better to have hope. <laughs> oh yeah, you're you're very optimistic. I think there's this view that it, it, it might just get worse. Yeah, it could definitely just get worse. We're probably more so on that track, but who knows? Anything can happen. Uh-huh. So uh, there was a time in the book when I was reading it, and I for a second I thought like I could feel your heart pumping, and that was when the Russian hacked you. Yes, that was that was quite something. So was that the scariest shit you've ever dealt with in your life? <laughs> I don't I, I don't know. Like I I don't think I've ever like stepped back and considered like compared all the scary shit that stuff that happened to me, but that was definitely very scary because I yeah. had never I had never been hacked before until then. And I still don't know how I was hacked and I I think in retrospect, what had happened was that because I had used the same passwords for everything, which I don't do anymore, but I had used the same passwords for everything. And there was probably a, one website where my password was leaked. They, that got compromised and they got my email address. They got my password. So they tried that same password on my email. Address. And yeah, the, the, those Russians were very smart. So I, 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 I say it's Russians because Google sent me a, a login alert that there was a login attempt from Russia, a successful login from Russia, but I only saw it when I woke up. So that happened at 3 a.m. So they they clearly knew what they were doing, but 
they also were not targeting me specifically. Uh, it was quite clear that it was a mass attack. And what they did was, I think they searched through my email account and they looked through um, what, whether I had any crypto accounts. And they went to those crypto accounts to try to reset the passwords and they tried to withdraw the coins. And luckily, well, I did not have two-factor authentication for my email. I had those for my crypto accounts. And so I didn't lose any money, but it was a, it was a good lesson. And such is the best type of lesson. You know, it makes you very oh, yeah. scared. But ultimately, I, I'm glad I was lucky in that instance. That could have gone real bad real quick. So listeners, make sure that you use those uh, two-way authentication stuff when you're doing anything on the internet, oh, especially yes. with Bitcoin. Yeah, especially with Bitcoin. You know, these, uh, these things are irreversible. Once you lose them, they're lost. Yeah. Like, um, oh, I don't know if I should talk about it in the interview, but you were talking about the LSD and how you ordered on the dark net and it never came. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I got ripped off on the dark web. So yeah. I, I was an idiot. I, yeah. I, uh, You're like, I'm not seeing that Bitcoin again. Yeah. Back then it wasn't a lot, but I think that was like, oh, that was like almost half the Bitcoin <laughs> that I lost. So yeah, that would be like, what, like 15,000 bucks, like 20,000 bucks maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I like in the, in the book how throughout the entire book, it's you show like where you're at, at with the Bitcoin, like the number of it. So like it increasingly goes up and down, you know what I'm saying? Like on the side parts. Oh, oh yeah. Like how, how the, uh, I guess how, how the sections of the book are arranged. So it yeah. starts from like, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't seen that before. I felt that was a good way to frame it. You know, like, um, the different eras of, of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. how that they are characterized by the, by the price movement. Yeah, and then eventually, like, you gave those Bitcoins to your parents, and then, like, later on, they were like, holy crap, this is worth, like, a lot of money now. And and you convinced them that this was a thing. I bet that felt pretty good. Oh, yeah. I feel to really convince people, you have to give them skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, once you have skin in the game, it matters more to you than, you know, if you were to simply examine it from far away. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I think... Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, how much I gave them. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't that amount, much. Yeah. But it, it, I think by now, maybe it's a, it'll be worth a couple of thousand. I think you said something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the, they they gave it back to me in the end. So. Oh, they did. But yeah. they were still really <laughs> impressed. Oh yeah, yeah, they were. So you grew up in Germany. You were born in China, and you moved to Canada. Oh yeah, so I, I I think I did have a bit of a globalized upbringing, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm still quite ashamed that German is my is my worst language. So that actually was uh, was an interview that there was a German podcast that wanted to interview me, and I, I had to I had to say like I I am not fluent enough to handle like a and like a back and forth interview. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, try, I try to pick pick the language up though. Like I, I think I, I'm fluent enough to you know order in a restaurant, but I think that's about it. So what do you like best? Like uh, out of the languages I speak? No, no, out of the places you've been. Oh, um, not North Korea. Don't include that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I would say I, I, 
I love Canada a lot, and but that is mainly because I have a lot of ties here now. So mm-hmm. my, my my girlfriend is here, and、uh, you know she has a job here, and I have、uh, I have friends here. I I would say I love Germany, but I I left when I was a kid, so I don't really I, I have like a few family friends there, but I don't have many like I don't know lots of people my own age there. But in terms of food, I really do miss German food. So oh.、Um, During the pandemic, I was, I was I was traveling like slightly before the pandemic started. I ended up in Germany, and I brought back like twenty four jars of this thing called Schweinkopfsulze to 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 Canada. So it's like a it's a meat jelly made with pig's head, and it's it's not for everyone, but I I love that, and I could not find the the same variety in Canada, and yeah, and it is、German. beautiful too. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I,、uh, yeah. The, I actually haven't been to the Alps, but I, one of my desires. So, what do you think is the origin for your passionate curiosity for these closed-off totalitarian states? Like, why did you want to go to North Korea? Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons is I wanted to.、Uh, I wondered how I would turn out if I were born and raised in a place like that. Because、uh, the only reason that I I'm able to pursue what I do is because of the opportunities my parents gave me. Because I, I think my, my my father, for example, he grew up in、uh, in in a China that is quite similar to North Korea at the time. Because China's economic boom, China's opening up, they're quite recent things. Back、yeah. when he was growing up, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, it was a different place. And he's a guy who really loves literature, and who he's the only guy I know who can read classical Chinese, which is、oh. which is like a whole different language than like modern Chinese. But he, you know, he has a great knowledge of that. But <laughs> he became an engineer, and I think a large part of that was because he grew up in a place like that. To、uh, To succeed in life, to to get out,、uh, to get a better life, you have to study the hard sciences.、Mm-hmm. But you know, he became a an engineer. But after he did that,、uh, he was able to provide a life for me that enabled me to study something as useless as journalism. So, I when I think <laughs> of when I think of a place like North Korea, I, I think of my father's upbringing, and I think、uh, if I were If I grew up in a place like that, you know, would I have?、Uh, What would you be an, like? Yeah, yeah an, an engineer like my father. So, and I, I think you said you,、uh, you, you have a fascination with such places as well, right? Or curiosity.、Yes. For well, for any of the totalitarian hardcore states, I like to watch documentaries on them. Uh huh. So I'm, I have an interest in them for some reason too. Oh, do tell why. I don't know. It's like a lot of it, probably to be honest, has to do with just the sheer brutality of the leaders, like Mao and whatnot, or any like any. We could go through basically any of the totalitarian states to the twentieth century, and I would be interested in them. It's not that I I would praise it or anything. I just there's something morbid that I just draws me to it, like the darkness of it draws me to it for some reason,、uh-huh. and I I want to know how they thought. I want to know why the people don't rise up and fight. I want to know how it all came together in the first place, and I, I definitely am not coming from your perspective, though, because I don't want to be there. 
Oh, I don't want to be there either. <laughs> I, I in no way want to grow up in a place like that. Yeah, I, I do not want to imagine myself to be, having to be in that. But it still fascinates me. Uh, well, I, I think perhaps I can tell you something about uh, my trip to North Korea that might shed some light on uh, why the people don't rise up. They, uh, they are. I, I think a lot of them they are quite, and I, I don't mean just that they believe that Kim Jong Kim Il Sung was like born on some mountain and there was a rainbow to mark his birth. Like they have lots of crazy stories about how the leaders are gods and stuff. I I don't mean that they believe that, but. I think if you grow up in a place like that without access to to the outside world, without and without any news of the outside world, uh, without without any of the things that all the information we process, we take in throughout our lives that make up who we are, they end up completely different people. And as you mean that they're like like a robot? I don't, I don't no, mean, not a, not a robot, not a robot. But like, hold on. Like maybe like the Matrix, they're like brainwashed. They basically live in a different world. Yeah, like uh, like for example, our, our North Korean minders, they told us that they believe that South Korea is exists exists under uh, a brutal occupation by the U.S. forces, and they want to liberate the whole of Korea. But whereas the South Korean perspective is like they want the U.S. there, mm-hmm. and they like you know what. And like, you know, Germany has a whole bunch of U.S. forces stationed there. And yeah. when Donald Trump pulled out quite a, a few of those ger- uh, of the soldiers stationed there, the Germans were pissed. And so, <laughs> the the way they think about like their existence, like the Germans or the or the South Koreans, is like way different from how the North Koreans view it. Yeah. And. And I think ultimately it's a matter of perspective. You know, you can't be r- right or wrong on, on opinions, but yeah, uh, totally. It's all so, a matter of per- like perspective and context. Yeah. So I, I think ultimately they would ca- come at things from a whole different perspective than like what you and I would be used to. We'll be right back to the interview with Ethan Liu after a quick break. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. We'll even give your podcast a shout out. 
Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. Yeah, they wouldn't even be they wouldn't even be like familiar with just being able to go and do what you want, eat what you want, and dress how you want. And that's just like a whole different universe to us. Oh yeah, like, I, if you look at the North Korean men particularly, I think everyone just wears the same two or three different types of things. Which they have their state haircuts. Oh yeah, which I, I found interesting in its own way. <laughs> oh man, that's so lame having to get one of like five state-approved haircuts. Like what? <laughs> So oh, yeah. when when you were putting everything together in the later half of the book, I'm not trying to give away any spoilers, but um, was that more stressful than the North Korea stuff? Because it seemed like you were trying to like, you're running around pretty crazy trying to find Jan and whatnot and all that, you know, with the lawsuits going on and, and everything. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that was that 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 was uh, quite uncomfortable and like like we talked about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I guess no one likes confrontation, and but I, I think it's something I, I'm used to. I, I, I remember um, early on in my career, I I wrote this story about how the, the king of the king of Swaziland, I guess back then it was called Swaziland, now it's called Iswatini, it's uh-huh. a landlocked African country. His plane had been detained in Canada because some other guy alleges that the king owes him money. And so they were fighting about that in court, and I, I, I broke that story, and it's quite embarrassing for the king. And also, the documents filed to court, they, they spilled forth quite a lot of unflattering personal details about the king, such as how he did not like to share washroom with others. And it, it wasn't a flattering story, but so as the case got progressed, as I reported more on it, the Swazi officials who I had to see comment from, they grew more and more hostile toward me. Mm. And like sometimes that we had physical appearances in courts. I when I was in court, I had to go try to talk to them. Uh, that that was deeply uncomfortable. But yeah. that was not the most uncomfortable. There was this other time when I had to. Um, so there was a 14-year-old girl in Toronto, mm. uh, killed by a stray bullet from a gang shooting, and I, I had to get comment from the mother. It was just like maybe not even 24 hours after she died. And so I had to cry. Yeah, when I pulled into the compound, I could see like uh, like on the front lawn, like there were like 20 people there, like friends, family, whatever, just sharing a collective gloom. And, 
and I was like, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I was still smoking back then. I was at the car, I was just one cigarette after another, and you know, hoping that maybe like there'll be an earthquake or something, and <laughs> and you know, so I won't have an to make the approach. <laughs> I eventually did, but so that that was very uncomfortable.、Um, yeah.、Uh, so ultimately, I, I guess maybe、uh, the fact that I've done, I've、uh, I've made these approaches so so often in my career, maybe has calloused me in a bit. And maybe I have a higher tolerance for uncomfortable situations than than people don't do this. But yeah, at at the same time, I、uh, I still felt very uncomfortable,、uh, particularly when approaching Jan because he was he was quite abusive.、But、yeah, what was his problem? Oh, I I can't speculate to, to what what he was thinking.、It's, but it I, seems so ridiculous. Like,、uh, why would、know. you not want to defend yourself and have your own side of the story? Well, I don't know, but I had a job, and you know, I I I sleep easy knowing that that I have done my job. Yeah. So, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you concerning your work?、Hmm. Worst thing that has ever happened to me. Hmm. That's a good question. I I can't put a finger on that. I.、Uh, I haven't been arrested or anything, so I, I have,、uh, I, I have, I have colleagues and friends who are, who you know got in yeah, trouble. Yeah, the FBI in,、uh, weren't after you though. Yeah, in、uh, they're after Griffith. Yeah, and I think ultimately, I actually feel very lucky, and not just not not just、uh, fr- from North North Korea, but、uh, a, a big part of it that is that. When we arrived in North Korea, I, Virgil Griffith, he was a he was a crypto big shot, so、mm-hmm. he was supposed to be a speaker at at this thing. But the rest of us, we thought we were going to be like passive participants. We were going to go there to listen to what the North Koreans had to present. But on the first day, they told us, "No, you guys are the presenters." <laughs> And I was like, "What?" And A part of me felt that it's probably not a good idea to present <laughs> crypto to North Koreans. Yeah, but you know, I, I'm not saying like I saw the future or anything. So I, you know, I I think about a lot of things. That wasn't a thought that I thought about very strongly, but that I did have a, an inkling of that thought within me, and you know, I ended up declining. So. I didn't speak at the thing,、and、which turned out I, to be an awesome move. Yeah, and I, I'm also I'm also not American, so the the law of virtual violated. It applies only to Americans. Oh yeah, you said that in the book, but still, it could have been I don't know, could have got some thorns in your side anyway. Yeah, and also、uh, a lot of people they had. Okay, maybe not a lot. I, I think I know at least two of the the eight people that went to North Korea with.、Uh, they. They had their email accounts subpoenaed, like like how we discussed just now.、Mm-hmm. But that also didn't happen to me, for some reason, and and that was the incident that made me switch to Proton Mail. So I, I think ultimately I, I I I count myself lucky. Yes, you're smart though. You like you were just being smart. You did everything right. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I I guess you can put it that way. Yeah, because it seemed like Griffith and the other people were kind of like, uh, you know, just like shooting from the hip a bit and just going for it, whatever. Going, but you were the one that was actually analyzing things and being like, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and v Virgil Griffith. So he, um, I, I don't think he he truly understood that the the authorities were after him because so he as an american could not go into north korea without express permission so yeah he sought the permission he was denied and he went anyway and then in north korea he was telling us that um i don't know who initiated that that meeting but he said he was going to talk to the state department officials when he got back which is dumb yeah and i i, I think you know like it's dumb in retrospect because we keep you know double dumb yeah <laughs> But at the time, I think he was he was thinking like, perhaps it was his maybe he felt it was his patriotic patriotic duty to debrief his country. He thought he was doing the State Department a favor. Maybe. Yeah, but you never talk to cops. Yeah, I guess. Uh, well, that I guess the State Department officials they weren't cops, but I imagine yeah. they referred the matter to the FBI sometime after that. But yeah, um. Yeah, I guess he he never really suspected anything until until it was too late. Until he got in trouble for giving secrets of Bitcoin to North Korea. Yeah, and I, I think ultimately he didn't really give any secrets. So he didn't. The, char <laughs> the charge against him is that it's not that he had succeeded in doing anything. It's just that he had the intention yeah. of uh, helping North Korea, and that mm -hmm. he acted on the intention. And he admitted to it. Yeah. Which that alone is actually kind of a big deal. You don't admit stuff like that to cops. By cops, I'm talking about FBI, all of them. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, I guess it's, it's pretty hard to deny that he went to North Korea because he, he posted his visa on Twitter. Yeah. And he was talking publicly and he, about he it. And he asked to go. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think ultimately it's just a, it's just a very unfortunate situation. And yeah. I... I feel very badly for him because I, I was in court and I, I could see his emotional state and it it wasn't great. Uh, he was breaking down. Oh, it, it, it wasn't that, but he uh, I could hear him sigh audibly at times, uh -huh. and he also he said he had depression and he was taking medication for it. And as well, you know, when you admit something in court. The court has to be satisfied that yeah. you you know what you're saying and you're not doing it under coercion. So you have to say everything out in your own words. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just very uncomfortable. You yeah. have to say like, I, Virgil Griffith, did all of this. Man, that's some crazy stuff though. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that you stayed on here this long with me. I really enjoy this. Oh, I love talking about this. Uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So what's the core message that you'd like to leave with the listeners concerning your work and your knowledge? Um, well, I, I think lots of people look at Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain through the lens of either monetary policy or, or you know, computer science. And But I chose to look at it more through the lens of the human condition. And mm -hmm. so I... That's that's what the book is about. It's about it's about people, and yes. it's 
it's a story, and I think stories are the best way to get people into uh, sometimes concepts that can sometimes be be abstract. Yeah, and so which the book the book does very well. It's very like a, it's it's human interaction like throughout the entire thing, and the way you write is just really easy to read too. Oh yeah, thank you. I, I'm gl- I'm glad you found it that way because uh, that was like that that was what I tried to get across. And man, so, I read it in two days. Oh man, yeah, I, I, I zipped I'm, right I'm, through it. I'm very glad to hear that. You know, <laughs> sometimes when you're writing, like you have no idea whether you're crazy or not uh, until the book comes out. Oh, that's great. I think that the best part is the end and the beginning. <laughs> oh yeah, that was. <laughs> I, I put a lot of effort into that, but. I won't elaborate so as not yeah, to spoil yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. No spoilers. Mm-hmm. So, um, where can my listeners connect you online? Where can they find you or your content? Oh, they can. They can just Google me. I, I'm easy to find, and Ethan conventional spelling and last name Lou spelled L O U. And the the name of the book is Once a Bitcoin Miner Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. And if you want to buy it, and if you if you hate Amazon, you can try a local independent bookstore. But it is available on, on Amazon as well? Oh, oh yes. Yeah, it's available wherever you buy books. But you, you know, like, because we were talking earlier about like, yeah, yeah. big the tech corporations. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as much as I can, I, I although I don't hate Amazon on like a 10, like maybe maybe it's like a five or six for me. But mm-hmm. as much as I, try, I, I can, I try to help out small businesses. Yeah, me too. I say Google is like a 10 for me on the hate scale. Oh yeah. I, I just I, do I just not like Google at all. But also I'll have a link in the show notes and a link to uh all the stuff that the listeners will need to find them. So check look for it. Cool. Sounds good. And uh thank you very much for having me, Tim. Yeah, no problem. It's really nice to meet you. I had a great time. Likewise. Hope to uh, talk to you soon. I will have this edited out really nice in a couple of days and I'll send it over to you, okay? Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Yep, have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. That's all for today's episode. I really enjoyed having Ethan Liu on the show and his knowledge of Bitcoin is unrivaled. As I'm sure you could tell, he's also a really chill person. Make sure you follow his work and don't forget to pick up a copy of his book, Once a Bitcoin Miner. Links to him in the show notes. Follow him on social media, everything. You're not going to want to miss it. And uh, let me know if you liked what you hear so we can steer future content together and maybe get more blockchain legends on the show. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. You look for us and we're there. If you can, make sure to like or comment or review wherever you hear this content. And if you enjoy Cryptic Chronicles even in the slightest, you can help out by just interacting with the content so the algorithms will like it more and help spread it, which will help grow the show. 
So please review, comment, share, like, it all helps. If it's on a podcast hub, just leave a review. That especially helps a lot. Though the show is free to listen to, the cost to produce it is substantial. By pleasing the gods of the algorithm, you are doing more than your fair share of supporting the show. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles, and you happen to be awesome, then support the show on Patreon. For just a dollar, you can unlock full, uncensored shows with no ads or anything like that. You'll get access to exclusive podcast episodes, and depending on your pledge, you can do a bunch of other awesome stuff too, like join the Discord server. Just go to CryptoChronicles.com and at the top, click on the Chronicler's Vault. It's a link to Patreon, so you'll be good to go. Or just Patreon slash CryptoChronicles. It really means a lot to me and thank you and look forward to seeing you on the Discord because that's where we work out a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about and, and sometimes go a little bit more into the topics that have already been covered. Not to mention the Arm Trotsky's there, who is, is uh, awesome and helps me out a lot. And speaking of awesome... I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Paul, Linda, Angela Dallaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, and our newest patron, Michael Whirl. Thanks, man. Means a lot to me. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the wisest men who ever lived once said, if you trust the government, it only means that you failed history class. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bomb boom.